Welcome to Rails with Jason. Hey, I want to tell you about something. If you struggle with writing tests for your Rails applications, specifically RSpec tests, I have something for you. At my website, codewithjason.com, I have a whole bunch of articles on Rails testing that I wrote. Here's a couple examples of what you can find there. You can find a repeatable step-by-step -step guide to writing integration tests with Capybara. That's where I share my formula that I use every time I write a Capybara test that makes it pretty easy. There is the ultimate guide to RSpec and Capybara tests. And there's also mocks and stubs in plain English. These are just a few examples of dozens and dozens of Rails testing articles that I've written at codewithjason.com. I also have a free Ruby testing micro course that you can download. It's a four-part course, pretty easy to go through. Hundreds of developers have already downloaded the course. You can join them by going to codewithjason.com and downloading the micro course. I also have a book called Rails Testing for Beginners. The book can be purchased as just the book or the book plus a video package where I walk through the book and show you everything in the book. Again, all these things are available at codewithjason.com. Now on to the episode. Welcome to Rails with Jason. I'm here today with Nate Hopkins. Nate Hopkins is the co-founder of CodeFund, and Nate is an open source maintainer and a Rubyist. Nate, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Jason. Uh, Nate, do you want to tell the listener about yourself a little bit? Sure. I've, I've been programming for about 20 years now. Uh, various languages. Started with Visual Basic, came up through the first beta of .NET. Um, I actually found dynamic uh, language programming through JavaScript. And from JavaScript went uh, into Ruby. I was kind of on the fence between Ruby and Python and landed in the Ruby world. And that was about mm -hmm. 10 years ago or so. And I have just stayed where I'm at for the most part. I've experimented and tinkered with other things, but my career has followed uh, Ruby for about the last 10 years, and I've been very happy with that. Yeah, uh, there's some parallels between your path and my path. It sounds like one of the first languages I did anything with was JavaScript back in the mid-90s. Uh, you might remember, like, um, it was it was really big to, like, make a message scroll across the status bar in Netscape oh, yeah. Navigator or whatever. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got into development, interestingly enough, through design. So I was I was at a, a design shop and we did all sorts of things from everything from t-shirts to branding to signage and everything else, you name it. I even ran operated a CNC router uh, back in the day. What's a CNC uh, router? But it's essentially, um, if you think about like a handheld uh, router that carves wood, it's essentially just a computer operated uh, version of that. So you've got your X, Y axis and your Z axis, and you can program it to 
carve all sorts of interesting, strange things. Oh, okay. Okay. So you guys started with design and then transitioned into, how, how exactly did that transition happen? And what was your like first encounter with something to do with programming? Uh, it was, it was in the nineties, like you were saying, and everybody wanted a, um, a company website. So it had to be, they had to get a presence online. This was like in the GeoCities era. And mm-hmm. uh, so they, they really didn't do anything. It was just kind of an information site about the business or something like that. And so I started cutting HTML and kind of moving some of those design elements, the branding and stuff like that over for a lot of these businesses that were wanting that as part of their package that they would come to us for. And from there, I found JavaScript kind of doing the trivial things that you're talking about with JavaScript, like uh, mouse, mouse hover states and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and from there, I got, I got pulled into more and more development. And of course, you know, development can be a, a fairly uh, well-paid career. And that's where I decided to take, take mine. And the rest was, was history. I found some great mentors and they leveled me up pretty quick and been programming ever since. Nice. Yeah, that's always helpful to have a good mentor. I I found my first really good mentor when I had been coding for, I guess, like 10 years because I started as a hobbyist when I was a kid. And then um, I I got a job at this place in like 2005 and I really, um, I kind of knew what I was doing, but maybe not really. It was the kind of thing where like I just kind of talked my way into the job I actually interviewed for this job two separate times. I got turned down and then I came back and tried again and I persuaded them to hire me. And it was a kind of a thing where I got thrown into the deep end and it was sink or swim and I managed to swim. But after, after maybe like six months or something of me being there, they hired a new boss for me who was this like super smart guy. And he was like 10 years older than me. And, and he, he was super helpful to me. He's the one who showed me Vim. He taught me about Linux. He kind of got me to switch from Windows to Linux, which was great. He's like, once you switch to Linux, you'll never go back to Windows. And he was completely right. I've never gone back to Windows. So that was that was great. Um, it's really good to have those kind of people if you can find them. No doubt, yeah. My, my career kind of went from uh, Microsoft world into... Uh, Linux and open platforms as well, mm-hmm. even though I run everything on Mac nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, similar, similar interface to uh, more similar to Linux, of course, than, than to Windows. Um, and you mentioned, you mentioned that you were kind of maybe on the fence between Ruby and Python. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So my JavaScript story is kind of an interesting one that, that led up to that decision. So, when I was programming um, in the Microsoft ecosystem, my my company had adopted the .NET platform on its uh, when it was in its first beta, and so that's where really where I found my first mentor that kind of helped me level up out of Visual Basic into an object oriented programming language, taught me all the OO concepts and patterns and practices to follow. But I realized that. A lot of the effort that that went in, so not everything was developed and given to the developer community from Microsoft, even though that's how they really wanted it to be. And most of the 
interesting work that was happening would often kind of get squashed by a white paper or even just vaporware that Microsoft would talk about and you know back in those days. And so you may have an interesting idea um, and want to push it kind of towards this open source model. And most companies would be very reluctant to adopt any of it because they were just waiting for the official libraries to be pushed down from Microsoft. And so I realized I wanted to move away from that and more into open platforms. And I, but the first job I found was a JavaScript position. And where I was at, I was kind of known as the, the front end guy. You know, I did all the HTML, all the CSS. I knew all the little weird browser quirks and all that kind of stuff and did quite a bit of the JavaScript as well. And so I got hired at a company to do JavaScript full time. It was just JavaScript. They already had, and this was this was pre jQuery days. They had a uh, uh, an application that was essentially Microsoft Outlook that ran in the browser, targeted Internet Explorer five five, and I was tasked with bringing that application up to speed so it would operate correctly inside of Firefox, which was a new browser that was gaining market share. The caveat was I was not allowed to modify the code, or at least not in any significant way. So that's when I discovered the power of a dynamic language and the ability to monkey patch and essentially expand you know, the, the operability of the language itself, of the DOM, all those things through monkey patching. And that's, mm-hmm. and I kind of fell in love mm-hmm. with that power. And let me, let me ask you a couple of questions about, about this. Cause I'm curious. So was the idea that it was working for IE five, five, and they wanted to make it work for Firefox, but they didn't want you to mess with the existing code. Okay. So like, it's a web application. So I don't know. How did you handle this challenge of like needing to leave the existing code, but having, but not being able to like change it? Well, um, essentially using the prototypical uh, inheritance model that JavaScript exposes. Of course, we didn't have any of the modern conveniences of, you know, quote, modern JavaScript, but there were still prototypical inheritance and you could expand or even override native behavior in the browser through that. And okay. so we just, we just added functionality. And I mean, the reasoning that they had was that it was already a, it was a hundred thousand line code base, JavaScript code base, and it was already QA'd and functioning. And so they didn't want to jeopardize you know, their existing customer base. Got it. And what was the, like, can you tell me a little bit of the story of like what, what happened at, with this code base before you and like was the code seemingly high quality and easy to work with or was it difficult to work with how did that part of it go it you know it was i i didn't spend a ton of time in the internals of that code other than uh, trying to understand what proprietary internet explorer apis they were using um but i would say yeah it was it was high quality and interestingly enough, I mean, this was, this was, again, this was pre jQuery days. So not a lot of people were doing 
too many crazy things with JavaScript back in, in that time. Although if you were doing um, interesting stuff, you were pretty much targeting, everyone was targeting Internet Explorer 5.5 because that was the only browser that allowed you uh, the XML HTTP request object and all sorts of interesting stuff that we're doing today, you know, in quote, modern JavaScript, data bindings, dynamic loads, all that kind of stuff was, was happening back then, but it was all targeting IE 5.5. Okay. And for any young whippersnappers who might be listening to this episode and don't know about XML HTTP requests, cause that part has always been abstracted away or whatever. That's what enables you to do Ajax, right? That's correct. And they were doing it for everything. Like every little micro update in this application was using it. Okay. Man, I remember when I first used Ajax, this was like 2006 or 2007, and it was just magical. Like I could not believe that you could click something on the page and then something on the page would update from the server and you wouldn't have to actually reload the page. It was like one of the, like I, I still remember it as like one of the most like, I don't know, um, one of the most magical moments in my programming career. Do you remember when you first got introduced to Ajax? I did. We were actually, even before that uh, object was available to us, we were do, you know, like finagling this type of behavior just through I, the use of iframes. And so you could, you could dynamically inject an iframe into the DOM and load a page into that iframe and then use the DOM to essentially slurp the content out of it and inject it in the current page. So we were doing that sort of stuff as well. But yeah, it certainly got a lot easier when the XML HTTP request object became available or widely available. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, I remember like manually coding all that stuff and just doing like a hello world for Ajax involved so much code. And then obviously jQuery made things so much easier. Um, okay. So you, you were kind of tasked with getting this project to work in Firefox. How did that go? Were you, were you ultimately able to do it and how long did it take and all that kind of stuff? I was there for probably about nine months and I would say we pretty much accomplished the goal. There were still, I mean, as with all programming, there's always edge cases and bugs that need to be addressed and things like that. But we were pretty much complete with the project by the time I had rolled off of that one. Okay. Uh, the interesting thing about it is it was pre jQuery. So what we kind of took a different model than, than the jQuery uh, approach. And that is because we weren't allowed to modify the existing code base. And so essentially what we did was we built probably maybe a third to a half of IE's DOM API uh, on, so that it operated identically on Firefox. So you could essentially target IE5's DOM API using their event model and everything, and it would just run on Firefox. I see. This is starting to make more sense to me. So like from the program's perspective, it didn't know whether it was talking to IE or Firefox because you had coded it so that if, if, if the IE... API was available, then great. But if it wasn't, you just made it appear to the program as if it were available and just abstracted on top of the um, Firefox API. So it'd 
behave the same as the IE API. Is that the right idea? Yep. Yeah, you have it exactly. And it was it was proved pretty challenging because at the time, IE, I believe, supported like 78 native browser events and Firefox supported like 17, maybe. So we had to we had to emulate probably half of those IE events. Oh wow. I can't even imagine how that would go. Do you do you remember? I know this is a long time ago now, but do you remember any examples of events that you had to emulate? Uh, the one that f comes to mind uh, most quickly is mouse enter and mouse leave. There was all sorts of events around, you know, text manipulation as well, where the selection went once it started, and then you selected a certain amount of text when the selection ended. All that kind of stuff. A lot of that didn't exist for Firefox back in the day. Okay. Wow. That sounds like kind of a fun project though. It was, it was, it was pretty challenging. We, um, we got it, we got it to work and, and our whole kind of uh, monkey patch that would, would insert itself if it identified that it wasn't operating on IE, it would load on the hardware of the time in about, I think it was like 60 or 80 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, that seems pretty fast. Yeah, we. I, I was pretty pleased with it. But yes. I mean, that's when that's when I realized the power of dynamic languages and especially the languages that gave you the facility to monkey patch or change native behavior. Okay. And then when did you, you said you first started getting into Ruby like 10 years ago. So maybe around like 2009, that kind of time period. Yeah, it might've been a little or little before that, but it's, that's close. Mm -hmm. And how did that come about? Did you specifically seek out Ruby or, or did you stumble across it somehow? How did that transition happen? Well, that was, that was in the day of, when you, you kind of, if you did any Googling around back in those days, there were kind of two camps um, and lines of thinking. One was, well, we've got Python and kind of the Django world, or we've got Ruby and Rails. Those are the two kind of leading frameworks, even though at the time it wasn't even obvious that they, those frameworks were going to be the, the leading contenders that would, you know, have such staying power. But... I was looking at both of those, wondering where I should take my career. And funny enough, I actually chose Python from from a personal, uh, just a personal decision. But I landed my first job doing Ruby. And I can't say that I regretted that. But uh, yeah, I started doing all sorts of side projects and, and getting ready to move my career towards Python. But the first contract I landed was with Ruby and Ruby on Rails. Got it. Yeah, I um, I went through a similar transition at a similar time. It was like 2010. I had been doing PHP for years, and I wanted to move away from it. And I was kind of evaluating Ruby versus Python to do this certain project that I was going to work on. And uh, I liked Python way more than PHP and I liked Ruby way more than PHP and I liked Ruby slightly more than Python and I liked Rails a little more than Django and so I ended up going with with Rails and uh, 
And I think that was the right choice for me just because like aesthetically I find Ruby and Rails to be like uh, better than, than Python and Django. So how did you get this? Uh, you said you got a, a Rails contract job or something like that. How did that come about? Well, I, I had I, I, my employer at the time, or the, actually I went to this employer after that last JavaScript job, and they were a consultancy that would hold a bench if you didn't have a contract to be on. But they, they hired me and knew that I was interested in dynamic languages and said, well, we've got this Ruby opportunity. Do you want to take it? And so I was like, well, yeah, this is where I want to take my career. So it was either it was either stay in JavaScript land, and there weren't a lot of companies that were that serious about JavaScript back then. And so I was like, well, it's either go back to Microsoft and C Sharp or do something new that's you know kind of more aligned with where I wanted to go with open source. And so I jumped on it as soon as the opportunity presented itself. Nice. Um, so I want to kind of transition a little bit and talk about your project. Uh, I have it up in a browser tab here, Stimulus Reflex. So obviously yeah. I am not very familiar at all with Stimulus Reflex. Uh, the extent of my familiarity is taking a glance at it uh, at the beginning of this call before we recorded. So can you tell us about that? What, what is that project? So my elevator pitch for Stimulus Reflex is it provides, it empowers small teams to ship their projects faster. And what that, what that actually entails, what that means is you, you do not have to adopt a front end, a full stack front end framework to get a very rich, interactive, reactive application built. And so okay. Stimulus Reflex makes that possible and incredibly simple for Rails developers. And is it called Stimulus Reflex because it works with the Stimulus library, or is that just a naming coincidence? No, it works. It's intended to work with the Stimulus library. So it leans on top of Stimulus, uses Stimulus controllers, and uses all of the Rails tooling that you're already familiar with and and that you use every day. So it's designed to work with server rendered HTML, kind of has that HTML first um, you know, worldview. It works with Action Cable, it works with Stimulus, it works with Turbolinks, it works with Russian doll caching, all the things that you're already doing in your Rails apps. Okay. And what kind of use case is this good for? Is this Is this something that I would use with any application or just certain kinds of applications or what? Yeah, it's still, it's a still a pretty young project, but my goal with it is that you probably would start your Ruby on Rails application. I think too many teams actually go and reach for something like React too, too early in the process. I would agree. I, I would say start your Rails application Try to do it entirely with just the Rails tooling that's already given to you out of the box. Use your server-side rendering, use Turbolinks, those sorts of things, and see if you can create the user experience you need. If the fidelity isn't there, then you need something that's a little more performant or just is a little better experience for your user, then Stimulus Reflex would be the next thing that you might reach for. And it may, and it, it, it may actually prevent or 
you know, mitigate the need to reach for some of these heavier solutions. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I've been working on a project <clears throat> for a little over a year now. And um, my approach to the JavaScript part of the project came out of kind of a rejection of the idea that every application should be a single page application by default with the client server architecture and the quote unquote modern JavaScript architecture. I, yep. uh, I had worked on too many applications that were built in the client server architecture with some framework like angular or something like that. When, uh, just traditional rails by itself would have been fine because it was just a, a crud application. Um, and, and a better approach in most of those cases of those applications I had worked on would have just been JavaScript sprinkles where you, you just have a little bit of JavaScript because the, the application isn't really doing anything that, that calls for anything more than just HTML. So I, I had a real distaste for that, way of working because it just adds so much complexity and time unnecessarily. So my challenge to myself was how, how far can I get in this application with how little JavaScript? So my goal is to just use as little JavaScript as possible. A year later, I am realizing that as little JavaScript as possible is still kind of a lot of JavaScript. And so I've started running into some challenges. Maybe about six or eight months into it, I started running into challenges, uh, structural challenges, where I just had this kind of, you know, I had the app assets JavaScripts folder, and it was just flat, and it had like 50 JavaScript files in there. And it's like, okay, this is this has become kind of a mess. And so I... I went and started using stimulus to try to impose some structure. That's been going pretty well so far. I only have a few files um, ported over to stimulus because I'm kind of uh, doing it gradually. But I've been pretty happy with that so far. And it sounds like maybe maybe a logical next step would to be would be to um, to to bring stimulus reflex into the project. What what like capabilities does it give you? on top of stimulus like what if i said i'm using stimulus and that that seems fine why bother with this thing yeah so let me see if i can give you a, a technical overview of what's happening so one of the interesting things that you can do is you can build a reactive application that feels like a single page app with stimulus reflex and not write any javascript whatsoever now when you do that like you had mentioned the xml http request object feeling pretty magical, this experience feels very much the same way. As soon as you do it the first time, it's a little mind boggling and it feels very magical. You're like, what, how is that even working? The, what's happening is essentially with stimulus reflex, if you go the no JavaScript route, you can just give your, an HTML element a data attribute of of reflex. So data reflex equals, and that will point to a special type of object that lives on your server side, a Ruby class that is a reflex object. That reflex object will mutate state for whatever. I mean, you may modify the session, you may update something in the database, 
something like that, you may set an instance variable and that's it. That's all you have to do in the reflex. And then the page that triggered that will re-render. That HTML will be sent back over the wire and DOM diffing with morphdom will occur and only the elements that have changed on the page will update. That is pretty interesting. Um, man, as I'm just clicking through your website right now, showing showing these code examples, and I'm sure it's on your list of to-dos. I, I find myself really wishing there was a, a video or a, a GIF or something uh, with an example of, of this behavior. But when you when you explain it like that, I can pretty much understand what it is like at first when you're talking about it, i'm like well how is that different from just turbo links but the difference i'm understanding is that turbo links is kind of the whole entire page but you could apply this to just one element on the page and and deal with that element individually is that right yeah i would say a bigger difference is probably the use of web sockets and you know the optimizations that that brings in terms of speed over you know incurring the 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 latency associated with the full http request response cycle that pipes through the whole rails middleware and all that kind of stuff so we bypass all of those things with stimulus reflex and and lean on the action cable web socket okay can you talk about that some? Because I pretty much don't know what WebSockets is at all, and I don't know what App Action Cable is at all. So can you help me understand that a little bit? Sure. So WebSockets are a technology that modern browsers support that allow browsers or clients to connect to the web server with essentially a persistent connection. So if you think about like a, a pipe between your browser window and the server, that pipe is just persistently connected and data can travel back and forth to and from the server on that same pipe. And it's never, it's never disconnected. I mean, it can be disconnected, but the, the model is that that is a persistent connection open between your browser and the server. And so, once the overhead of that connection has been established, now you just have this open channel, this open line to the server to send data to it and to receive data from it. Okay. And action, yeah, action cable is the Rails abstraction on top of that WebSocket model. Okay. Okay, and this uses, so it doesn't use uh ajax it uses action cable that's correct got it okay interesting and is that common is that common for people to to use action cable where historically somebody might have used um ajax or is this kind of a, a newer thing that you're doing yeah i would say people are I, would, I don't know how common it is, but it's becoming more and more common that people are doing their communications over WebSocket. In the old okay. days, before WebSockets were a thing, there was a technique called long polling that essentially kind of mimicked that behavior where you would essentially make a, a traditional web request to the server, but the server would hold that connection open for as long as it possibly could. That way it could stream data back down to the client. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I remember being kind of tangentially aware of long polling because I wanted to build some app that that made use of that. I never got it completely working. Um, so why why did you want to go the Action Cable uh, WebSockets route instead of Ajax? What advantages did that approach have? It's essentially kind of those those things that I had outlined before, but it's really about um, speed. How fast can you get data to and from? So if you're thinking about a reactive application, where like one of the demos in the in the documents that we've got is an incrementer, where you click you cl click essentially an anchor tag or a link that says increment, and what that will do is it'll actually send a message to the server over the WebSocket. The WebSocket will increment the count and then re-render the page and send the updates back down. And it all happens in you know a matter of milliseconds. It's like 50 milliseconds. And so it feels just like it would in a in a React application or in a Vue application or an Angular application. It feels that responsive, but you're actually delegating the state management to to the server. Okay. Yeah, I like that. That seems pretty attractive. Um, okay, and it seems like this is probably a, a sufficiently lightweight thing where you could you could install it in your Rails Rails application and try it out pretty easily without having to jump through a bunch of hoops. Is that right? That's that's very much correct. Yeah, you can you can kick the tires with this with minimal risk to an existing application. Yeah, nice. Okay, and if somebody wants to find that, they can go to it looks like stimulusreflex.com. If they go to docs.stimulusreflex.com, they are they will find it, yes. Okay, and I'll make sure to put that in the show notes too. Um, I want to switch gears again and, and bring up another project of yours, which is CodeFund. Can you tell us about that? What is CodeFund? Yeah, um, I'm a co-founder at CodeFund, and essentially what CodeFund's mission is as a company is to fund open source projects and open source developers. So developers, and I'm obviously one, are, are very, I mean, we're notorious about not necessarily being the most business savvy. And we're also kind of known for not uh, receiving our you know, a just compensation for our open source work. And because a lot of companies will, will use those projects or use those libraries or whatever it is we're creating. And we're just kind of working for free part time and off hours and, you know, taking time away from exercise or family or whatever it might be to maintain those projects. And so CodeFund exists to make sure that money finds its way to those developers and to those projects without putting the burden on the developer to like put on their business hat and start thinking about how they can turn a project into a business. Okay. That's pretty interesting. How long has this been? How long, how long ago did you start this project? So the project was started by my good friend, Eric Berry about two years ago, and it was originally known as code sponsor. And what we did in the early days was just provided a little snippet of code that you could put on your GitHub readme. And it would show essentially an advertisement for a single sponsor that was sponsoring your project. So that could be, you know, any number of companies that are wanting to reach a developer audience, but they're all very relevant to the projects involved. So it could be somebody like a digital ocean or something like that. 
Um, that says, I see. I was looking at the Code Fund website earlier, and I see there's a there's a section of the site for advertisers, one for publishers, and I was kind of trying to piece together like, how does this work? If I am an advertiser and I want to advertise, how does how does that work? And so that kind of helps connect the dots. It sounds like um, if you have yeah. an open source project, you can. Where exactly does the advertisement go? Where does it show up? Well, so yeah, to give you continue our history a little bit, so you have a little more context. I, you know, nobody wants GitHub to turn into a you know just a wall of advertisements, and we were very careful to not do that. We wanted very discreet, uh, single placement that that essentially would you know provide some value to the advertiser, but also be very um, nondescript so that it didn't feel like, you know, the side of a race car or something when you went in and looked at a, a project on GitHub. However, this, this was early days and we were probably pushing the boundaries a little bit more than we should have, uh, seeking forgiveness rather than permission. And GitHub came back and said, no, you can't do that. And so the company actually pivoted to essentially be a kind of a, a technical, technically focused, developer focused ad network. So if your project had a website or a documentation site or something like that, you could go and place a little snippet on that particular site and show the advertisement that way with the same, with the same goals, you know, very unobtrusive, not annoying, single placement, just so that you could generate a little extra income to help you avoid burnout help you get some compensation for your effort, that sort of thing. Okay. I, I think I'm kind of understanding it. So I had a, uh, I had a blog a long time ago. Well, I've had a number of blogs over the years and, and I've put like banner ads on them. And I think the landscape is maybe different today, but at the time I had like one of those rectangular banners on the right hand side where you'd end up with, um, I don't know, the ads would be for, for pretty dumb stuff a lot of the time that wasn't super relevant and you know the stuff that was of the quality of like one weird trick to eliminate belly fat type stuff although this was before all that kind of stuff came about when i was doing it and i think my revenue was like to the tune of five bucks a month or something like that so this sounds like maybe a higher quality, similar idea, but like a higher quality way of doing it where the ads are more relevant and it's not some annoying, like big animated thing. It's more tasteful and, uh, and that kind of thing. Am I kind of getting that idea right? Yep. Yep. Um, developers, we, you know, as a community, we're very sensitive to the audiences that we've built we're also a little sensitive to this idea of, of selling out or something, right? We're, I think there's been quite a few developers that I've met that are a bit reluctant to even earn money on their own projects. And we're, we're trying to help educate and you know, teach people that you can earn money in an ethical way. So we don't, like our ad network does not do any tracking via cookies or anything like that. There's no remarketing. It's all content-based. So if you brought your website to CodeFund and said, okay, this is my blog and I mostly talk about Ruby or I mostly talk about JavaScript or whatever, you can actually put those keywords in about your property and then advertisers 
can find your property through the keywords based on the content that you present, not the, the audience you've built. So you can't come into CodeFund and do something like you can on Facebook, right? Where you can say, I wanna, well, I wanna reach uh, developers between the age of 20 and 25, you know, that have some college, you can't target like that. It's all content based. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that seems to make sense. Um, I was going to ask something else. Oh yeah. Is the, uh, is it like a pay-per-click model or how does that part of it work? So on our, our standard network, our main network, it's an impression model. So advertisers will pay per impression per, uh, it's called CPM and it's cost per thousand impressions. And so we set the price for that. And then we also set as high of a revenue share as possible. We still have to take a little bit of money ourselves to just make the business viable, but we give as much of that money back to the project as possible. Okay. Um, and can you give me some level of feel, you know, only share what you're comfortable sharing, of course, but like, can you give me some kind of feel for like, how are, how are people using this in the sense that like, are people earning full-time income off of putting, putting ads on their, on their projects, or is it maybe just kind of a thing where you, where you will get a couple of bucks a month and, and it's just kind of a nice little bit of extra money and obviously realizing that it's a relatively new project being only two years old, uh, anything is going to take, uh, you know, probably many years to get serious adoption, but can you tell me a little bit about that kind of stuff? Sure. So, I mean, the first thing would be that, you know, there is a minimum threshold in terms of, uh, how many, essentially, if you think of it like popularity, like how many visits you're getting on your site project. So there is a minimum threshold you have to meet. And I believe it's 5,000, you have to have 5,000 visits per month, I believe. We've moved that uh, that target because it has to be valuable enough to the, uh, the advertiser as well. And so the more popular your project is, obviously the more money you can make because of the uh, impression uh, pricing model that we're using. Some okay. people are making essentially, you know, maybe anywhere from $30 a month. And we've got some that are into the thousands. So it just depends on how popular your project is. Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. Okay. And and then how do you get connected with uh, advertisers? Like how do you find people who want to advertise on this platform? So as far as code, fun, as far as the developer is concerned, it's a, that's something you don't even have to consider. So the, one of the great things about uh, code fund is we eliminate like the strings attached model to something like a Patreon, or if somebody came to you directly and said, hey, I would like to place my company on your project. Oftentimes that comes with strings attached that, okay, now my issues or my concerns need to be addressed first. We eliminate that. So we kind of stand, stand in between there and the developer doesn't have to think anything about like who's going to advertise on my site. They can they can reject advertisers that they don't want on their site, but essentially it's something that they really don't have to concern themselves with. The advertiser just comes in and says, "Hey, I've got something that's going to be very relevant to a Ruby-based audience. Help me get on the sites that are talking about Ruby." 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that stuff I pretty much understood. I was just asking out of curiosity, how do you find the advertisers? Because that must be, I imagine that must be uh, a kind of a challenge to, to find those organizations. It is, but a lot, it's interesting because the developer audience is one that advertisers are very anxious to get in front of. And there's not a lot of channels for them to do that. And so CodeFund has proven to be fairly popular. A lot of it is word of mouth. Um, and obviously advertisers want something that will convert well. And what we found is with CodeFund and the quality of our projects and our developers that we put on our, our network, on the developer side of our network, it actually has driven a lot of high quality advertisements. And so the as we continue to do that, advertisers kind of come to us. Now, having said that, we still we still do cold calls, cold emails, that sort of thing to try to you know balance it out. That's the other thing that's really difficult about you know building a two-sided marketplace. It's like a seesaw. We may bring more developers and projects in but they may get a little frustrated if we don't have advertisers to advertise and vice versa. So it's, that's, that's the balancing act we keep playing every month. Okay. Yeah. I can imagine. I, I myself have never, well, actually, yeah, I've attempted to build two-sided marketplace type stuff and it is notoriously difficult for the exact reasons that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. If you think about companies like Google or Facebook, they they kind of have a a way to mitigate some of those concerns because they are they have their own traffic source. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, that sounds pretty cool. Um, and if somebody, what's what's the process if somebody has an open source project and they want to see about getting involved with CodeFund? Yeah, you would just go to codefund.io click on the publisher tab or the advertiser tab depending on what uh, you're interested in i imagine this audience is going to be mostly publishers which are our developers or the people creating the websites you click on that read a little bit about it go to if you're interested fill out our form and um, get on get on the list awesome. integration integration couldn't be simpler you just once once your property's in there's a little snippet that you just put on your site and you are done. Okay. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, one more question I want to ask you before I ask the question that I ask everybody, which is where can people find out more about you and all that kind of stuff is uh, you're on the Ruby rogues podcast. You and I recorded a podcast together some months ago. How long have you been uh, involved with Ruby rogues? Well, my relationship with Chuck goes way back, probably to my early Ruby days, honestly. Um, maybe I'd maybe been doing Ruby for two years, maybe, when I first met Chuck. And But I've only been on the podcast for the last year or so, maybe a little over a year. Okay. And you're based in Utah and so is Chuck. So did you guys know each other from just like the local community in that area? Yeah, he actually, uh, I think I might have interviewed him when he hired on at the consultancy I was with. But yeah, that's, and then we worked together on a project after that. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. I don't know if you knew, but I was a panelist on the Ruby Rogues for like a year. It was it, it, it spanned 2016. I don't remember if it was like 2015, 2016, or 2016, 2017, or whatever. But I was I was on there for uh, for some time. That's that show has been going for like 10 years or something like that, right? I don't know if it's that long, but a number of years, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's been going for quite a while. The, one of the things that I admire most about Chuck is his ability to ship. He is consistent. Yeah. Yeah. There's never been a time that I was aware of where there was like a a hiatus of the show or anything like that. It's been consistently year after year. Yep. Yep. That's a good, good lesson we can all learn, I think. Yeah. Um, okay. So last question I'll ask you before we wrap up, obviously we've, we've mentioned your various projects and URLs and stuff like that. So feel free to, to share those again, if you want, or anything else, Twitter, anything like that, where can people find you online, learn more about you and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, it's pretty easy. Uh, my Twitter handle is Hopsoft, and that is my GitHub handle also. I would encourage people to go check out uh, Stimulus Reflex as a project. You can find that under Hopsoft Stimulus underscore Reflex on GitHub. And the interesting thing about that project, we interviewed DHH on Rogues, I don't know, it's maybe been two or three months ago now, maybe two months ago. And you can hear him talking about Rails and JavaScript sprinkles and all the things we kind of alluded to. But you, you get a sense that that he even understands there's something missing in the Rails ecosystem to kind of close the loop. You know what I mean? And I think stimulus reflex could possibly be it or something like stimulus reflex. So I would encourage people to go give it a shot. You know, if you if you find uh, issues with it, reach out. I've got a few people contributing to the project now and new features are landing almost every week. So it's, it's pretty exciting. Also, I was going to tell you, Jason, if if you want to see it in action, there is a link to example applications. So I don't know if you're familiar with the to do MVC that was created to essentially kind of pit all these front end frameworks against each other. So you could see how the implementations go and what the performance is like and all that sort of stuff. So we, I actually took that to do MVC and I made a stimulus reflex demo out of it. That's hosted on Heroku. So you can link to that from the, the documentation site as well. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. That sounds really cool. If I get a chance, I'll definitely check that one out. I hope other people do. Uh, I hope other people do as well. Um, Nate, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun.